0: Psalm 16, 16, page 491. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my conscience instructs me. I keep the Lord in mind always because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my spirit rejoices. My body also rests securely. For you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. In your right hand are eternal pleasures.
1: Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now, his commands are not a burden, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood and the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept the testimony of men, God's testimony is greater, because it is God's testimony that he has given about his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has this testimony within him. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord.
2: Our friends, do please keep Uh, 1 John 5, verse 1 to 12, open in front of you, page 1122. Um, I wonder if that, as that Bible reading was read out, you sort of were going, what on earth is all that about? Um, Water, the blood, the spirit, yeah? Were you sort of going, what is all that about? Um, The original readers of 1 John would have known exactly what John was talking about when they had that read out loud, but um, you and I, sort of 2,000 years later, perhaps a little bit of help kind of understanding that. So my plan is today to sort of unpack us, unpack that passage and help us to see that this morning. But let's pray. Uh, that God will help us to see what this word means to us today. Let's pray. Father, we again are your sheep. Father, you are our good shepherd. And Father, your sheep hear your voice. So this morning, Father, as you speak to us through your word, help us to listen, help us to obey and Father, we ask that this morning again, afresh, we would see Jesus, we would hear Jesus, and we would all leave today loving Jesus, for in Him alone is that which we need the most: eternal life, forgiveness of sins. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the goal of studying one John, at least for me and our church, has been to flourish. Uh, to flourish as God's people, rooted in the truth, to grow in love for God and for all people. Um, I've been really encouraged by looking at the numbers of Church by the Bridge since we started about 10 years ago, but even the numbers here at 945, we have grown significantly at 945 over recent times. It's really exciting, and that's something to give God great thanks for. But what I want to see as a result of studying 1 John is that we just don't grow numerically, But we grow in greater depth of relationship, greater intimacy, greater compassion, greater service, greater grace, greater peace, as God's people here at Church by the Bridge at 945. And 1 John, I think, has been the perfect text in the New Testament to teach us about what loving community really looks like. But did you know that we're not the only ones who are focused on building community in 2014? There's an image on the screen coming up. A small group of atheists have decided to build community in 2014. Earlier this year, this is a picture out of the Sydney Morning Herald, uh, 25th of November 2013 at Redfern Town Hall. This is Atheist Church in Redfern. Okay? It started in London. It's made its way to Redfern in Sydney and it's actually spreading sort of right across the world. And seriously, they get together, they sing songs together, uh, they have readings, most likely from St. Christopher and St. Richard. Um, they then, um, well, I'm told they have a talk, a sermon, dare I say it. And I have it on good authority. There are no prayers prayed at Atheist Church. And then, of course, they get together after the service and drink milky tea and have wheat cordial, just like we do at 9.45. Um, about 100 people came to the first meeting of Atheist Church in Redfern. Now, when I first heard about this, when I read about this in the Sydney Morning Herald, I kind of winced. The thought of atheists trying to mimic kind of copycat church? If I was a young hipster atheist kind of guy, the last thing I'd want to do is kind of do something that looks and smells and kind of tastes like church. It's kind of like bad Christian pop music, isn't it? Always trying to sound like the cool music of the world, but never quite pulling it off. Um, And yet, perhaps we should take it as a compliment. Atheists have observed and watched Christian churches across the ages despite their faults, but they see something powerful in the community of God's people. The whole is much greater than the sum of the parts, and they desire community. And I think if atheists want to experience the the power of community, then we should applaud them. But the real question I was thinking as I sort of read about atheist church and things like that was this. What binds them together? What's at the heart of why they gather together? What binds them together as people? If Richard Dawkins is right, and that at the bottom of the universe, I quote him, and he says this number of times there's no good, no evil, but blind, pitiless indifference, is that really the basis for togetherness over the long haul? What is the basis? I really wonder if shared acceptance of pitiless indifference at the heart of the universe, that cannot be the best medicine, the best ingredients for community. But we will watch and see. You can watch with me and see what happens with atheist church. By contrast, I've been saying since day one of our study of the letter of 1 John that there is no richer basis For communities than the truth of the gospel that issues in lives individually and corporately of love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness and peace. The God who at the center of the universe is love. God is love and gave himself for us. As Miroslav Volf says, he says, community of love is at the heart of the very being of God. That is the ingredients we need for lasting community, real community. And when that idea is believed, that God gave up glory, came into the messy, broken world in which we live and laid down his life for us, even the most cold-hearted amongst us is lifted above him or herself to believe in the logic and the beauty of love. Even if you're a bit of a selfishly orientated person, a bit of a grump, if you believe that love is at the centre of the universe, at the very being of God, then, even if you feel like that, you'll see that love is the logic of the universe. And so 1 John, all the way through, has had this alternating pattern, hasn't it, that emphasizes the truth of the gospel of God's love and the importance of our reflecting and shining that love. The sermons have reflected this pattern. A passage about truth followed by a passage about love. A passage about truth followed by a passage about love. A passage about truth, then a passage about love. And today, we come to the seventh passage in 1 John which segues out of last week's outstandingly brilliant call to love because God first loved us into an equally powerful call today to stay true to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, these are my two very simple points for this morning. See if you can guess them. The first one is love. Can you guess what the second point is? Truth. I heard a few murmurs. Well done. Love, truth. They're two points today. Have a look with me at verses 1 through 3 of chapter 5 under the idea of love. The opening line of chapter five, which I really hope you have open in front of you, uh, concerns both love and truth. It's kind of a hinge. I don't know if you spotted that as we went through. Have a look with me at verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. That's theology. That's truth. Everyone who's been born of God, born of Christ, sorry, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, Christos, has been born of God. That's theology, that's truth. Which then gives rise to the second half of the verse, which is love. Have a look with me. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Truth and love. Interestingly, verse 1b has this really neat little play on words. Uh, in the original language. Not all Greek plays on words are worth mentioning, but I think this one's really lovely. So I want to mention it to you today, okay? John literally plays on the Greek word genao, which is the verb to beget. And he basically writes this. Literally, it's on the screen, hopefully. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah is begotten by God, and everyone who loves the begetter loves the begotten. Do you see that? Everyone who's begotten by God by the begetter, loves the begotten. It's a really beautiful way. It's kind of a poetic flourish by John, if you want to call it that. He's basically saying, if you're born of God, you're going to love God's other kids as well. That's what he says. It makes sense, doesn't it? Okay, but how do you know you're loving God properly? How do you know you're loving God properly? It's a good question. Verse 2. This is how we know that we love God's children. Okay, excellent. We're about to find out if you're loving the children of God properly. When we love God and keep or carry out his commands. We're used to hearing John say things like, this is how you know you love God, by loving other people. We get that logic, don't we, right? This is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God. That's what he says here. The real question is, how do you know when your love for others is not merely love of an affinity or a club, but true agape, true love, that we looked at last week. If I was to ever insert a word into Holy Scripture, which I won't ever do, but if I was to, this is what I think he's saying, how do you know that you truly love God properly? That's the sense is going on here. The answer here is, you love God and obey his commands. Then you will know that you have the right kind of love. Why? Because God hasn't left love vague and ambiguous for us to guess. See, the more you love God, the clearer it is how you get to know that you're loving your brothers and sisters. Because God entered the world in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, and gave himself for us on a cross. He, in his very being, is love. God is love. And so as you love that God... And love then becomes clearer to you so you know how to love the children of God, those born of God. But more than that, he said it's about obeying his commands. You'll know that you're loving people properly when you are loving and obeying God's commandments. The simple point is this. God, through his Son, has given us specific commandments about how to love, hasn't he? Yeah? So if you love and obey God's commandments, then you'll be loving properly. Loving God's people properly. The reason for that is, sorry, you see in John's Gospel, the same author of 1 John, you see Jesus himself displaying what real love is like. He took off his robe, put a towel around his waist, got some soap, got a basin of water and washed his disciples' feet. And John introduces that episode in John's Gospel by saying Jesus showed the full extent of his love. Wow. Wow. The reason for that is that it was the household slave's duty to wash the feet of guests. And here is Jesus, God in the flesh. What's he saying? The command to love is the command to serve. Jesus said, turn the other cheek. He said, care for the poor. He said, don't judge other people. He said, forgive those who hate you. Love your enemies. My point is that if you obey his commands, you will be loving properly. That your love arises not just out of the affinity of a club or shared ideas about that, but it will be the love of God outflowing from your life into loving other people. Following these commands is what it means to love God. Verse 3 tells us, so the intimate connection between loving God and loving his people continues. Have a look at verse 3. Well, this is what love for God is, to keep his commands. Now, his commands are not a burden, because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. The commands that I think John's referring to here are specifically about the commands to love. Um, But why does he say that these commands are not a burden? They're not burdensome to do these commands of love. Because I bet some of you are thinking here right now, Some days I find God's commands to love kind of a little bit burdensome. It's important to point out that John doesn't mean that we won't find it difficult to love. I mean, really, who finds it easy in this room to love apart from Russ DeVries, who just seems to love everybody? I mean, everyone else here struggles with it apart from Russ. No, no, I'm sure Russ struggles with just ask Naomi about that. But um, it's important to point out, though, isn't it? It's not easy to love. So what does he mean in the real world? What it means is we won't find God's commandments stultifying or displeasing or oppressive, even if they are difficult to live out. That's what it means, that the commands of God will not be burdensome for those born of God. If I can give you an analogy, here's a picture on the screen of my wife. There she is. I married up, didn't I? I really did marry up. Um, That's Adele and I. To be honest, I do find it difficult at times... To be the man that Adele deserves, I really do. But I don't find it a burden. It's my joy to try to be the man, the husband that Adele deserves. Why? Because I-L-O-V-E her. I love her. See when you love someone, no matter how difficult it can be, it's not a burden. Of course, my point is, as hard as it might be to naturally love the people as Christ loved people, it's not a burden. It's difficult, it's messy, but it's a joy to live the way God has loved, lived, uh, caused us to live. And it's certainly far from displeasing, oppressive, and stultifying. And with that, John leaves behind the subject of love. He abandons love for the rest of the letter. Um, no more love. Because as crucial as love is, John has a bigger fish to fry, and the rest of the letter is going to cook it. Um, Have a look with me. For John, there'll be no Christian love if we compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we move, or we slip into the second point, truth, verses 4 through 12. Verse 4 is a lovely segue from truth to love, from ethics to doctrine. Have a look at verses 4 and 5. Because whatever has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. And who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? What is our victory over the world, brothers and sisters? Not our love, notice, but our faith. Not our love, but our faith. That's where our victory lies. And when John uses the word faith, he doesn't mean the strength of your faith. He means the thing that your faith is in, the object in whom your faith is in. He means what we would call the faith. You know, we talk about the Christian faith. Um, That isn't the strength of your power to trust, but the content of the thing in which you believe. That's exactly what John talks about in the rest of this passage. It's the rest of the letter. The main idea of the rest of the passage is that eternal life, real life, only comes by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, as told in the Gospels. That's what John is going to say from now on. That's the true victory. The true overcoming of the world is trusting the content of the gospel, nothing else. The real point here is not how much faith you can muster up, but rather where your faith is in, who it's in. It's a little bit like nervous flyers and confident flyers, okay, taking off in the same plane. I know some of you out there are nervous flyers. I'm not a nervous flyer. I'm one of those guys that's sitting next to you and I'm asleep before the plane's even taken off, right? And you're sitting there going, you can't fall asleep before the plane's taken off. I mean, you're hanging onto the seat like white knuckle fever, and I'm just like snoozing. And you're going, no, 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 we've got to work together to keep the plane up. How can you fall asleep? The plane's going to come down. Who's safer, nervous Nelly or sleeping Simon? It's got nothing to do with the vigor or trust or your nervousness, it's to do with the plane. See, whether you're a nervous Christian or a super-chilled, confident Christian, your victory is assured not because of the strength of your faith, but because of the content of your faith. The Lord Jesus Christ of the Gospels. A correct understanding of Jesus is the key to everything. That's what John is about to say. Let me show you. I admit verses 5 through 8 are a little confusing at first, but let's unpack it together. Uh, Verse 5. And who is the one who has conquered the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Why here does John say Son of God, did you notice, rather than Jesus or Messiah, as in the opening line of chapter 5, verse 1? simple answer is that John uses these titles as synonyms. They're just the same thing. In fact, it's interesting, this whole passage, it's interesting that it's, it's the connection between 1 John 5 and the gospel that John wrote about 10 years earlier than this. ...that everyone in the audience already had. The importance of this cannot be overstated. Because John is clearly reminding his people in chapter 5 of 1 John... ...of the gospel that he wrote to them earlier. Let me give you a sense of this. On the screen is the climactic summary of John's gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Same author 10 years earlier. Having written the biography of Jesus' life... ...John concludes with these words... But these are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in his name. Did you notice the key words of 1 John chapter 5? Jesus Christ, Son of God, believe, life. Am I right? They're also the key words of the climactic summary of John's gospel. Jesus Christ, Messiah, Son of God, believe life. And I'll put it to you that everyone who is a reader of 1 John heard what John was saying at this point. He is reminding us to hold on to his gospel. Hold on to the biography of Jesus, the eyewitness testimony about the truth of Christ. As I've said several times through this series, there were Gnostics around. They'd left John's churches and had begun to teach that Jesus wasn't the Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour. They didn't deny that you could connect with the highest God, but they did deny that you connected to the highest God through the faith in Jesus Christ, his death on our behalf and the life that we have through him. So what does John do in 1 John 5? He reminds us of two crucial points in his biography, the Gospel of John. One from the beginning of John's Gospel, and one from the climax of John's Gospel. Hold on to that as I read verses 6 through 8. Hold on to that. Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and blood, not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. They're slightly bizarre sentences, aren't they? And so you recall John's gospel as the original readers could. Water and spirit take you back to the original chapter, the opening chapter of John's gospel. What was it? Jesus' baptism. Look at the references. Flick back with me if you, want, if you can to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And you'll read it, I'll read it out for you. John chapter 1, verse 29. John chapter 1, verse 29, page 976. 129, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, here is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I told you about. After me comes a man who has surpassed me because he existed before me. I didn't know him, but I came baptizing with water so he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I watched the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he rested on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water told me, The one you see the Spirit descending and resting on, he is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that he is the Son of God. When John says in his letter, the water and the Spirit testify to Jesus, the original readers know that's the first story of the gospel where Jesus himself was baptized with water and the Spirit in the Jordan. See that? Chapter 1. What of the blood? Verse 6 makes a big deal about blood. Verse verse 6, Jesus Christ, he is the one who came by water and the blood. So does verse 8, the spirit, the water, and the blood. These three are in agreement. What's the blood? You know what the blood is. I don't have to tell you what the blood is. It's the climactic moment in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of the world as the Lamb of God. And in John's Gospel, there are references to blood and water gushing out the side of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. The Gnostics did not deny the man Jesus Christ died on a cross. It was too recent history for them to kind of brush aside. They just denied that it had any saving significance. But they believed that Jesus' spirit left him just before his crucifixion. Why? Because in Greek thought, The holiness, the power and the purity of God could not possibly be associated with weakness and suffering, death and blood. So the spirit of Jesus kind of just left Jesus. That's what the Gnostics did. But do you see how John picks up this and he says it's not just the water and the spirit at his baptism that testified to Jesus being the son of God. It's the blood, the spirit, the water and the blood are one. What he's saying is my biography of Jesus Christ that begins with the baptism, climaxes with Jesus' death on a cross, that bloody crucifixion is the revelation about God himself. The testimony about life, the blood testifies contra to the Gnostics. And you may know that our Muslim friends have a similar critique to the Gnostics about Jesus Christ for almost similar reasons. Last year, I was involved in a debate at the University of Adelaide. I was giving a series of talks there at their mission week, and on the first day, it was a a debate between myself and the head of the atheist kind of um, organisation at the University of Adelaide, and in the crowd was a Muslim guy. He was the leader of the Muslim group on campus. Um, He was in the audience, and we spoke at this debate for a while. Then there was a 15-minute question time. The entire 15-minute question time was just me and this Muslim guy having a conversation, and everyone else feeling really nervous in the room at the time. It was a beautiful conversation though. Like it was really, he was beautifully articulate, more articulate than I am. Um, and we had this great conversation. He said, though, in this kind of back and forth question time, he said, Jesus the prophet could never have died on the cross because it's such a shameful death. Because God could never be associated with such shame and weakness. I said, I'd said during the debate that Jesus, according to the Bible and Christian theology that Jesus was God incarnate, and that God in Jesus shed his blood for our sins. And this Muslim leader said to me very politely, but very, very strongly, he said, are you telling me that God had to eat? That God had to go to the toilet? That God breathed a last breath? There was no winner in this to and fro in the question time, but it was crystal clear to the audience that Islam and Christianity, although similar in many ways, have diametrically opposed visions of the character of God. What is blasphemous in Islam is the very centre of the Christian faith God's weakness, humility, self sacrifice, His blood for us water and the blood, if I can put it like this. John's point, whether for the Gnostic, whether for the Muslim, or any secularist, the entire biography of Jesus from water to his baptism to his bloody death testifies to his identity as God's son, the son of God, who brings eternal life, saviour of the world. His mission to save us all from death and to bring us to new life, eternal life is the very point of John's gospel. John chapter 20, verse 31. I've written these things that you will believe that Jesus is the Son of God and by believing in him, have life in his name. That's the summary of John's message in his gospel. But notice in verses 11 and 12, it's the summary of his letter here today. It's exactly the same message. Have a look at verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in his Son. The one who has the Son of life, the one who has the Son has life. The one who doesn't have the Son of God does not have life. It's very stark. If you have the Son of God, you have life. If you don't have the Son of God, you don't have life. And John's point is not whether or not you have a version of Jesus but whether you have the Jesus of eyewitness testimony of the Gospels. The Jesus from water to the blood, from baptism to burial, then resurrection. You see, the Gnostics had a version of Jesus, a version that didn't care about sin, certainly didn't care about a Jesus dying on the cross for sin, nor the importance of love. Oh, they had a version of Jesus. Our Muslim friends have a version of Jesus. The Prophet who are Islam, but who certainly didn't die on the cross and therefore certainly couldn't atone for sins. And our secular friends have a version of Jesus. He's still one of the most highly regarded figures in world history as Jesus. But to them, he's just a teacher who merely endorses all of our life decisions and choices, but never spoke of judgment. And dare I say it, the church sometimes has just a version of Jesus. The Jesus who is just the theological answer to our sin problem, not the living Lord of the Gospels of the universe who got on his knees and washed sinners' feet and then said to his followers, go, do likewise. Do you have the Jesus of eyewitness testimony? Not a version, but the Jesus who is from water to the blood. Because versions of Jesus cannot bring you life. Versions of Jesus are no basis for Christian community. Not now, not beyond the judgment. I don't ask this question directly very often, but I wouldn't be teaching God's word faithfully today if I failed to ask you all this morning Do you have the Son? Do you believe in Jesus? Not a version of Jesus. Not a modification of Jesus. Not a theologization of Jesus. But Jesus, the Son of God. Creator. King of kings. Lord of lords. Holy God. The one who came, who lived, who loved, who died, who rose again, and calls us into a life of now, of love now and into eternity by trusting in his work. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. I'm going to just give you just a minute. Just to reflect on your own about whether you have the Son of God. There's some words on the screen coming up. I'm not going to pray that prayer, but that might be something you want to read through and reflect on whether you have the Son of God and have life. And then Liz and Co are going to lead us in singing. You might want to do business with God today.